Sunrift Adventures and Historic Travelers Rest South Carolina has been outfitting the foothills for over 37 years with the best boats, bikes, tents, and more. With great brands, Sunrift has you covered for every adventure. Stop into Sunrift Adventures' unique outdoor shop and say hello today. Go to sunrift.com for more information. That's sunrift.com. Nature's Edge is brought to you by the Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina, Western North Carolina's only magazine dedicated to the fishing enthusiast. Pick one up at over 400 locations throughout Western North Carolina or visit them online at theanglermagazine.com to find out more. And be sure to follow them on Facebook, Angler Magazine of Western North Carolina. Programming support for Nature's Edge comes from the Native Watercraft, locally made fishing kayaks designed for Carolina waters and beyond. Models featuring the hands-free propel pedal drive system, the new Slayer 12XC, perfect for fishing the French Broad as well as a full range of kayak fishing accessories can be purchased at the Native Watercraft Factory Store at 210 Old Airport Road in Fletcher, North Carolina. Again, that is 210 Old Airport Road in Fletcher. For more details, Google Native Watercraft Factory Store. Hey guys, Dale Stewart here. You all know how much I enjoy good storytelling, hunting dogs, hunting, fishing, and pretty much anything in our great outdoor world. Well, our guest today is a North Carolina native who can trace his family roots back to, I think, the mid-1700s, and his great-great-great-grandfather arrived here with five of the family hunting dogs, and these dogs would later become renowned as the premier big-game hunting dog breed in America, the Plot Bear Hound. Bob Plot, welcome to Nature's Edge. Glad to be here, Dale. Honored to be here. In fact, a big fan of yours. Well, I thank you, bud. I appreciate that. You know, Bob, you're also uh, quite a historian, and you've written books, and you give lectures, and you talk, and you have something to do with that North Carolina company called NASCAR, but uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, about how important you think storytelling is in, in, in this world we're living in. That's a great question and a great point. Uh, I think it's uh, intensely important today, particularly with the live oral traditions being lost and a lot of old-timers passing away, but I think it's it's a form of entertainment, Dale, but it's also, I think, a, a part of history and making sure that that history is recorded and and perpetuated and people's legacies are remembered and continued. So uh, it's always been a big part of my life and, uh, and something I've always been interested in. Well, you know, I, I know you like myself. You know, we both grew up uh, pretty much in outdoor families, and and there was nothing I enjoyed more, and I'm, I'm sure you're the same way, of sitting and listening to the stories of, of my grandfather and my uh, my grandparents and my mom, my dad, and and just neighbors who lived in in the area would uh, nothing like sitting on their front porch uh, listening to their stories. Could not agree more, Dale. I tell you, it's uh, you know I was always that kind of you know you and I have talked about this before. I was always that kind of I guess strange kid who just enjoyed that sort of thing more than most kids my age did. There was nothing I loved more than 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 being around some of those old-timers and some of them family and, like you said, some of them friends. And, and I had a great opportunity to do that, both within my own family and, and within friends of our family. You know, I had the 
when I was 10, 11 years old, you know, I was sitting on the front porch of the Calhoun house in Bryson City talking to Granville Calhoun, who was 98 years old then and had lived on Hazel Creek and uh, lived to be 103, but uh, was mentioned in Horace Kephart's books. And, well, and just a great, great man. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so all that stuff was so important to me. And then one day I kind of, as I got older, everybody in my family was kind of doing it. But then as I got older and out of college, I realized that most of those folks were gone and and somebody needed to try to record some of that stuff. So I, I kind of felt responsible for doing some of that. Oh, a- absolutely. And, and, you know, I still do a lot of that. I, I've, I've never met a person that I wouldn't, that didn't have a great story to tell. And, uh, and, and Absolutely. Uh, sit down and sit down and listen to them and you know not just the stories but you know i learned most of what i know about our natural world came from them as well you know stomping around following them down through the woods and the bayous and and uh you know growing up hunting and fishing and and uh sort of learning to be self-sufficient uh was also a big part of that absolutely and i think you know you coming from louisiana i mean it's a southern thing it's not just a a mountain thing it's i think it's more of a southern thing but it's uh but it's i think it's unique through throughout that region and even more so probably down your way where you grew up and as well as now in the in the southern mountains and it was um you know it's just such a, a privilege for me to learn from these folks and and i think you know there was a, there was a sense of humor in a lot of the stuff that they told and a lot of funny stuff but there was so much to learn and self-sufficiency was so so important because you know, living in those remote locations, a lot of these people literally had to, to grow or hunt or, you know, find everything they needed to live, and they did, and lived well, you know. And so for me, that was always very, very interesting to to learn from these folks and, and, and really, you know, it was an education like no other. I mean, you just can't get that sort of thing in a book. I mean, there's some great books out there, but uh, but there's just nothing like seeing it firsthand and and hearing from people who had to live to do it, you know. Yeah, you know, I can remember my grandfather uh, talking about, you know, he he and my grandmother very seldom went to the grocery store. I mean, no, you know, yeah. he he hunted and fished, and they had a garden, and pretty much grew uh, and and uh, and gathered everything that uh, everything that they wanted or needed, and and, uh, and you know, and, and it it. And I may be wrong about this, but I really think it's also kind of a cultural thing in a lot of areas. Yes. You know how we yes. how we do that, and uh, and I also know that uh, you know hunting and fishing, uh, particularly hunting today, kind of gets a, a bad rap. But uh, uh, you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, you know, hunters I think can be and have been at times our own worst enemies because. Uh, you know, I think we need to work a lot harder in advocating ethical hunting because one of the things I do in my programs is talk about the importance of it, that, you know, you don't have to necessarily do it yourself or you don't necessarily have to um, go out and hunt, but it's really important to do that because it's part of the, the circle of life, you know, that the Cherokee believed in. You you take what you need, you don't overkill, you don't take anything that you don't need, you're not out there just hunting for trophies, you're actually hunting for food, and, and by doing so, you're eliminating, uh, uh, you're keeping the animal con- population under control because you're keeping, reducing the number of animal-borne diseases, you're re- reducing the number of potential for collision with, with the cars and vehicles, and uh, predatory attacks, because one thing I talked about in my second book, a lot of wildlife biologists are, are now saying that, you know, there's a real concern about that, that 
some of these animals are not afraid of people anymore simply because they don't have habitat so they have to go looking for food so i think hunting plays a big part in that and and certainly that was part of my heritage and then you know i was really fortunate to grow up not only with the plot family but my aunt worked in the cherokee indian museum there in cherokee and and I, i got to meet some old old folks there like moses al when i was a little boy and he taught me a lot about the cherokee beliefs of the the, the right way of doing things and the ethical way of doing things and and uh, you know taking only what you needed and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's I think it's very very important for us to remember that and to not lose sight of that and to and see that it's continued. Um, but also by the same token, you know, folks that don't do it right don't deserve to have the privilege to do it either. Could not agree more. You know, you mentioned your books, and I, I did want to say that. Uh, Bob has written a number of books, and, and his second book was uh, A History of Hunting in the Great Smoky Mountains, and he also wrote a book called Legendary Hunters of the Southern Highlands, and uh, you wrote, wrote one about uh, characters of the Smoky Mountains, and and a book that I really enjoy that uh, I want you to talk a little bit about is Strike and Stay, the story of the plot hound, since uh, since that hound is named after your family. Yeah, well... Uh that book was first published back in 2007, and quite honestly, um, were it not for George Ellison, it probably would not have happened. Well, not probably, it definitely would not have happened. Uh, Great guy. He had encur- yeah, for sure. He'd encouraged me for years to write a book, and I just kept pushing him off, thinking that, you know, there's no way I could do something like that. It would get rejected. But he finally, t- and I, I, I kept telling him, well, what would I write about? And he said, well, write about what you know, and write about it in a way that, uh, that you understand and other people will understand so uh, my son was born back in 93 and I felt like well gosh I want to do something to help him remember this because a lot of this stuff was was disappearing I was still raising the dogs but uh, it was turned around one day and I was basically one of probably the last plot family members still doing it a lot of other people still raising plot hounds don't get me wrong but uh, most everybody else in our family had either died off or had stopped doing it so um, I wrote wrote that book in 2000, or was published in 2007, and uh, was very, very successful, still in print today. It's been published in all 50 states, uh, 17, sold in 17 different countries. Uh, but it's um, really was kind of the foundation for the other books, too, because there was so much information that I gathered and had access to that I didn't really have room for that book. Uh, that kind of led to the other four books as well. But I really wanted to get that story told about the dog because obviously it's my family. Sure. But also there have been so many uh, inaccuracies in the story over the years, and I really wanted to try to to blend uh, documented fact, historical fact, also with you know oral family tradition and trying to differentiate between the two. And uh, I, I think hopefully I think I was fairly successful at doing that. Well, I think so, and I, I know the book also won some uh, uh, literary awards, and, and congratulations on that. And, Thank you. Tell me, describe the plot hound for those people who may not be familiar with it. Uh, okay, the, uh, you know, when I do programs, I always start out the program by telling people there's really no middle ground when you think about a plot hound. People either tend to fall into two distinct categories. They're either... Uh, very knowledgeable about the breed or they're completely clueless about the breed you know I'll, I'll, I'll have one of my dogs with me at times and I'll run into some friends 
of mine who may know me from work or something, and they'll say, oh, that's a beautiful dog, Bob. And I'll say, well, thank you. And they'll say, what kind of dog is it? And I'll say, well, it's a plot hound. And they'll say, well, idiot, we know it's your dog, but <laughs> what kind of dog is it really? And I'm like, no, really, it's a plot hound, you know? Yeah. So it kind of gives me the opportunity to explain it. But to answer your question in more detail, um, they're a, 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 a American purebred dog, but they have uh, German roots, origins, which makes them pretty unique. There's only uh, just a handful of American purebred dogs that have German roots. Uh, most most American purebred dogs originated in the British Isles. And uh, the plot hound, though, is about, uh, on the, the breed standard, they're, they're, they're muscular, thick-chested dogs. They, they have a, they're not as houndy looking as, say, a bloodhound. They don't have as much loose skin as a bloodhound. Uh, they're very um, loyal. They're very intelligent. I tell a lot of those stories in my book about their, their loyalty, their intelligence, their fierce tenacity, their ability to strike a trail and stay on it, which is literally why the name, of the, how the name of the book came about, Strike and Stay. They can strike a bear trail or a big game trail and stay on it for days if they need to. But they have um, probably one of their most distinct characteristics is their brindle coat. Um, and the, that brindle coat can come in kind of a different varieties have a darker base coat with light stripes and you can have a, a, a light base coat with dark stripes. Uh, they're also about five percent of the dogs are a solid buckskin color and uh, you'll see occasionally dogs with a black saddleback and brindle trim but probably 95 percent of the breed is, is uh, the purebred dogs anyway are, are have some form of brindle coat. Uh, they have uh, uh, rounder ears than say a bloodhound that the ears have slight erectile powers they have a saber tail uh, very athletic looking dogs uh, very alert very um, intelligent yeah they're they're a, a great dog and as you know i have a dog that uh, that sort of originated in the in the appalachian mountains too i have a mountain feist and yes, sir. yeah sir. The, who's a purebred and most people see it and they think it's some kind of a terrier or something, which I understand why they think that. But they, you know, they, these dogs were, were bred for these mountains and bred for hunting, yes, and he's the same way. You know, he gets on the trail of a, a squirrel or a rabbit. There's no getting him off of it, and uh, yeah. and he and he also thinks he can take on a bear. But you know, <laughs> I, I tell him we'll leave that leave that to the plot to the uh, to the plot hounds to do that a little bit. <laughs> uh, I know you do, Bob, a lot of a lot of speaking and other things, and and uh, uh, you you also do wood carving and you you sketch and uh, you also do historical reenactments, don't you? Did that for a, a whole lot more when I was younger. Don't do it quite as much now, but usually we'll do a, a 18th century camp over at Western Carolina University for Mountain Heritage Day, and yeah. we're probably going to do another one at Folk Moot in July this year. But uh, that kind of got started for us, too, from the standpoint of we wanted to do things historically accurate. A lot of people were doing reenactment things just from the perspective of setting up at a, a historical site and then staying in a hotel that night. Sure. And we didn't want to do that. We wanted to, me and a couple of my really close friends, we wanted to really live it. And so we would go out and, and hunt, literally hunt with flintlock rifles, yeah. uh, you know, wearing buckskins, camp in, you know, we, we've camped in three or four inches of snow and, and three degrees of weather with just a campfire and 18th century clothing and gear. So 
it gives you a whole new respect for what our forefathers experienced and uh, an appreciation of, 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 of their skill sets. You know, Bob, I can't have you on the uh, show without, and you, you mentioned a place called Hazel Creek uh, mm-hmm. uh, earlier in the show, and and uh, to talk just a, just a little bit about someone who you and I are both uh, very familiar with and, and have studied at length, and that's Horace Gephardt. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, well, you know, my uncle ran the railroad depot in Bryson City from 19, early 1920s until he retired in 19, late 1960s. And so he he was there firsthand. My father was too. At, at, well, my father was in World War II during the some of, but before that. But primarily, my uncle got to see a lot of the stuff with Horace Kephart firsthand. He was he was hunting part. My uncle was Cecil Plot was hunting partners with uh, Mark Cathy and sure. New Quill Rose and all these guys. But he knew Kephart personally, and and he had made the comment to me over the years many times that that span of his lifetime in Bryson City that he had never seen a funeral bigger in Swain County than Horace Kephart. So clearly, you know, for all the different people that have taken pot shots at him, yeah. uh, he, he was highly respected by the, the, the mountain people there. And as I said in George Ellison's new book, um, folks like Little John Cable and Granville Calhoun and Bill Hyde, those guys did not suffer fools lightly they you had to be pretty tough guy and a pretty elite hunter to even go out with them and and yet he was with them on a fairly routine basis and and seemed to be respected by him so you know i always respected that aspect of him i think his camping and woodcraft book still today is the finest field manual that's ever been written in my opinion i absolutely i agree with that and uh i think the uh uh you know and i think this, this new biography that George and, and Janet McHugh, uh, George Ellison and Janet McHugh have written, I think really identifies the fact that, you know, he was suffering from some mental problems probably sure. back then that today would have been handled with medication, but he had no other recourse than to seek salvation in the mountains. And, you know, just as you know so well, there's healing powers in nature, and and, and I think he found that healing in the Great Smokies and then, of course, it goes without saying the work that he did to see that the Great Smoky Mountains National Park was formed. So, you know, I, I've got nothing but respect for what he was able to do. And, and, of course, the area of Hazel Creek, where he had a camp at one time where he really did a lot of his best writing, um, it was uh, also the site of, uh, in my fifth book, Plot Hound Tales, I talk a lot about the Hazel Creek hunt that uh, Branch Rickey, the baseball executive, was on, and sure. a lot of my family were guides for them and back in 1935. Uh, really interesting uh, piece of history there pertaining around that camp and, and the people who owned that land. They had access to about 250,000 acres of land total that is now all either underwater at Fontana Lake or in the, in the park. So uh, some interesting piece of history there. And, of course, Kephart was on the edges of all that Absolutely. Up, in, up until his death. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm like you. I've been fortunate that I've I've walked a lot of those same paths that I'm sure Gephardt mm-hmm. walked, and I've spent a lot of time in that that part of Western North Carolina, and, and absolutely love it. Bob, uh, talking about your books and and your speaking and everything else, uh, we got a, f- a few minutes left here. Tell people where they can uh, where they can get you and uh, and learn a little more about uh, Bob Plot. 
you have a website, right? Yes, sir. My website's uh, bobplot.com, two T's in plot. And uh, uh, you can find my books. They're all being published by the History Press. Uh, they are can be bought at most any local bookstore. If you're in western North Carolina, I think uh, Malprops, Nashville, Carrium, uh, City Lights in Silva, uh, O'Neill's Books in Bryson City, uh, Blue Ridge Books in Hazelwood. So they're pretty much uh, can be found anywhere. And if you can't find them, you can order them online from the publisher, or you can go to my website, send me an email, and I can certainly make sure you get a copy. And, and also, if anybody's interested in doing those sort of programs, uh, we do a variety of programs. I've also been very fortunate to be on the North Carolina Humanities Council's Road Scholar speaking roster for the past, um, gosh, 10 years, maybe eight, eight, nine years at least. Uh, and we do programs all over the state sponsored by the Humanities Council. So. Uh, got a lot of things going on. I'd like to have even more things going on. So uh, just if I can help anybody or, you know, my goal is to hopefully educate and entertain a little bit at the same time, hopefully. So yeah. uh, and we try to do that. Uh, I, I'd, I would really like to share the stage with you sometime, Bob. I think we could sit there and tell some great stories. Oh, man, <laughs> dude, I would love it, man. I, I, I was so excited to get your call this week because it's something that, you know, we've exchanged some messages over the years, but never really got to spend a lot of time together. And I'm hoping maybe next week at Kephart Days we'll be able to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to seeing you. Uh, just real quick, uh, you're, you're uh, involved with NASCAR. Yeah. Uh, I've been. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say, talk about that just for a few seconds. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into that almost the way I did in writing. I had had a martial arts background. I'd been taking martial arts since I was a teenager and had gotten fairly proficient at that, enough so that I had ran several martial arts schools and fought competitively and professionally. And um, uh, in doing so, I had trained a few NASCAR race car drivers and pit crew guys. And they told me, they said, you know, man, you really should get involved in this pit crew side of training because there's so much of what you do in the martial arts, the ergonomics of it, the physiology of it, the efficiency of movement that relates to this. And, and you know, and I, I had been a fan, a casual fan of the sport, but, I, you know, I, I didn't really, hadn't never really followed it really closely. And uh, this place that I'm actually the general manager of now opened up, and uh, I made a contact there, and wow, I said, man, this is really neat. You know, it's a whole different world. So we've got this $10 million training facility here in Morrisville, North Carolina, and we, we train uh, NASCAR. We're only the only state-certified and licensed uh, pit crew training school. We have to go through the same uh, rules and regulations that community college does. Yeah. And Bob, I'm going to have to – I'm sorry. Uh, the Go producer's ahead. waving at me, so we're, we're, uh, we're closing out of time, my friend. I'm going to have to have you back on the radio and uh, – we, there's so much more that we want to talk about and uh, appreciate you being here and folks this is dale stewart with nature's edge till next time run wild run free my friend visit naturesedgemedia.com you can check out podcasts videos lecture archives from dale and much more thank you for listening to nature's edge with dale stewart brought to you by angler magazine of western north carolina